Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Allison Duvall. And I'm Kendall Martin. And we're coming to you today with an in-between seasons episode. Yes, we're very excited to share with you the audio from a recent virtual workshop we hosted for Partners and Welcome members. Kendall, can you tell our listeners about Partners and Welcome, and then I'll talk a little bit about the idea behind the virtual workshops? Sure. So Partners and Welcome is EMM's newest church engagement program. It is both a ministry network and an online learning community. Through Partners and Welcome, we are mapping immigration-related ministries across the Episcopal Church, and we are also creating educational materials, toolkits, resources, and other materials to equip, empower, and encourage Partners and Welcome members to welcome newcomers, become advocates, and launch and strengthen local ministries with immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. One of the things we offer through Partners and Welcome is these virtual workshops. Virtual workshops are interactive online learning events for Partners and Welcome members to come together with a practitioner, an expert, or a conversation facilitator to learn, share best practices and ideas, and to be in dialogue with one another around a common theme or topic. Unlike webinars, which can be pretty passive, almost like you're attending a lecture, Partners and Welcome virtual workshops require that participants are actively engaged in a workshop-style environment. Today's podcast episode is the edited audio from a recent virtual workshop called Asset-Based Community Development 201, the story of Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte. Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte is a ministry of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, birthed through the identification of assets and intentional conversation with the community. Today, just four years later, Galilee Ministries serves over 700 people a week in multiple ways that include providing services for refugees and immigrants while connecting Episcopal and other congregations to their neighbors. Their mission is one of community building and radical hospitality. We hope hearing Galilee's story will inspire you and your congregation to similar discernment and ministry. We're very grateful to our two presenters today, Tony Hagerman and the Reverend Rebecca Yarbrough, who are so generously offering ABCD 201, the story of Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte. So thank you both so much. Um, ABCD is an acronym for Asset-Based Community Development. And what they're offering today is kind of a case study, a window in to how Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte has really implemented that philosophy of community development and lives it out each and every day in their work. Rebecca, over to you. Okay, thank you. I'm going to start off. Um, I'm Rebecca Yarbrough, uh, one of the deacons who was involved in the beginning of Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte. And Tony is going to pick up with where we are now and what we're doing. We're just so glad to be here today. I want to start off by saying that when Allison was listening, listing 
experts and practitioners and all. I think we would describe ourselves as practitioners, but we are by no means experts. So we are, we are here to share with you what we have learned through lots of practicing, and boy, we are still practicing. When St. Andrew's Episcopal Church closed in May of 2013, it was a, and this is in Charlotte, North Carolina, it was a really messy closing. It was a surprise to a lot of the members of the congregation. There was terrible press. And it was a death. And it was a death accompanied by all the things that accompany death. But then in the spring of 2015, about two years later, uh, St. Andrews reopened as Galilee Center. And it really, it was a resurrection story. Uh, it felt kind of miraculous. And, you know, the big question is, how did that happen? The short answer to the how that it happened was that the Holy Spirit was just busy running ahead of all of us. And we were just racing, trying to catch up. But the longer answer is that we are a great example of asset-based community development but it's truly by the grace of God because none of us had had ABCD training. We had sort of maybe heard of it, kind of. Uh, I'd, had, I'd done some work with appreciative inquiry, but we just sort of fell into it. And that's the honest truth because of a big asset we were given to work with. Our timeline is really important. You know, they say timing is everything. So after St. Andrew's closed, there were a lot of discussions about at the diocesan level about what to do with the property. And there was a big push to sell it because real estate in that area is booming, but it didn't get sold. And then in November of 2013, Bishop Michael Curry, who y'all may know, is now presiding bishop, but he was our bishop diocesan at the time. He delivered an address at convention that was based on Jesus's call to the disciples after the resurrection to meet him in Galilee. And the whole theme was that you go back to your old stomping grounds, your home territory, and you find Jesus there in a new way. And so his thing was, y'all go to Galilee, go to Galilee. Then our Bishop Suffragan, Anne Hodges Koppel, who is still our Bishop Suffragan, she put together that call to go to Galilee with the closing of St. Andrews. And so in January of 2014, in the middle of an ice storm, she called a group of deacons together and said, hey, y'all, do you want to see if this is a Galilee opportunity? And of course, being good deacons, we all said, Sure. So uh, she worked with the powers that be and the sale of the property was put on hold. It was leased to a tenant congregation and we had been given a year to figure out what to do. Boy, we did not know what we were getting into. So we started out trying to figure out who our neighbors were and we looked at demographic information and some maps that you can get down off census websites. And it looked like they were Latino and African-American and white and middle to lower income. But, you know, it, it was not unexpected. And many of us had not even seen the property. I mean, we'd driven past it, but we hadn't been inside. And 
here's what we found. 16,000 plus square feet of heated space with a huge parish hall, offices, classrooms, nave, big commercial kitchen, all in need of some tender loving care. The next thing we did is we started paying attention to our surroundings beyond the church campus. And when we did that, we found out a whole lot more than the demographic data told us because Central Avenue, where the church is located, is literally like a restaurant row of international restaurants. And I think we all sort of knew that, but we didn't really know it until we started opening our eyes and looking and seeing all the signs on all the businesses in all different languages, not just Spanish, but Vietnamese and Burmese and Middle Eastern restaurants and African restaurants. So that was a big eye opener. Then we made a little informal list and this is, this is about five, four or five deacons working together. We made a list of people that we might know in the community and we started reaching out to them. Talked to people who ran a community organization called Charlotte East. We talked to International House. We talked to the local community policing person, school principals. And we also started enlarging our group because not every church in Charlotte has a deacon. So we reached out and we pulled in some lay leaders we thought would be interested. And we also picked up a couple of great associate rectors along the way. And one of our volunteers is not a real out front person, but she said, I'll go to community meetings and I'll just listen. She was, our, we called her our stealth listener. And she sat in the back and listened and took notes. And that turned out to be really valuable. We also met with the tenant congregation which turned out to be a really good thing as we went forward and we're talking about goals. And then finally, a bunch of us started gathering once a week to do morning prayer at a Latino bakery, which has great food. So what we heard from all this process was that it really was a far more diverse community than we thought it was. It was a safer community than we thought it was. People tended to really get along. People absolutely loved the services that St. Andrews had provided, and they were really sad about the closing of St. Andrews. Not so much because of the worship services, because most of them weren't Episcopalians, but because of the community services, including the community garden and the food pantry and English as a second language classes. And there were a lot of memories that, you know, uh, of the good stuff that had happened there. And part of the good stuff was that everybody, when they went to St. Andrews, they felt really, truly welcomed, whether they were Christian or not, no matter what color they were, they felt like they were really welcomed. Now, at the same time that was going on, we also had people coming to us with lots of ideas for single uses. And that was like a bilingual preschool, a, a contemplative center, uh, after school, just all kinds of things that would take the whole building. What we learned from all of that listening was that the expanding our group brought a whole lot more wisdom and it brought lots more skills to the table and it brought lots more opportunities for connections within the church and outside the church. We learned that it's important not to miss talking with 
anybody because like the conversation with the tenant congregation, we decided that our goals were diverging, but because we had really respectful conversation on the front end, when that happened, there weren't any hard feelings. And we also learned from our stealth listener that the community really wanted those helping services back, but they did not trust the Episcopal Church because the Episcopal Church had come in and they closed the church that was doing all that good in the community. So it pretty much didn't matter what we said, we were gonna have to do. So by this point, we'd gotten ourselves to the point that we could sort of spell out some options. It was around August and we'd been meeting for eight months and one of the proposals was develop a new worshiping community. And we all were like, no, we can't possibly do that because those St. Andrews folks who have found other congregations are just starting to heal. And this would be like pulling the scab off. We could lease the whole building to another group, but we realized we didn't know the community well enough yet to realize what single purpose would be most helpful. And we'd had some proposals that hadn't popped up as something that the community wanted in any of the discussions we'd had. So we, we took that one off the table. So that left either start new ministries based on what we heard or seeing if the folks who were doing the old ministries wanted to come back. So we prayed and we discerned and we realized that what we had become without really realizing it was a group that was really committed to being community-based, that we were in an exciting community. Uh, we had lots of opportunities to reconnect and we were already getting some connections made. And, and we just felt like, you know, if we're really gonna be community-based, we need to go find those people who made the community so happy before. And we knew that the St. Andrews members had volunteered but they hadn't led most of the helping ministries that were going on. So at that point, we started looking. We, we tracked down the person who ran the English as a Second Language program, and she was with the local community college, Central Piedmont, and because she loves to garden, she also ran the community garden. Uh, we tracked down the food pantry folks because the people said, the garden and ESL and the food pantry, those were their top three things. Central Piedmont wanted to come back. The food pantry wanted to come back. And it wasn't until that point that we actually realized that the population that we were going to be working with most closely were refugees. So think about that. That means that that community accepted their refugee neighbors so fully that they didn't even feel it was important to call it out that they were refugees. By this time, we knew we were on a track, so we did some more reaching out, and a friend, I talked to a friend of mine at the city who was working on neighborhood development, and a day later, he sent me an email from somebody who wanted to start a community kitchen, and that's how we met Ben. And uh, Marion at the community college said, you need to talk to Refugee Support Services. I'm gonna bring my friend Rachel. And we said, great. One of the things we never did is we never said, no, you can't come to a meeting. We, if you were interested and wanted to be a part of the team, you were a part of the team. Now came the hard part, because we, by this time we had 
the community college, the food pantry, refugee support services, and Catholic charities who also ran an after school program on board. And we had Ben, Charlotte Community Kitchen, interested. And so at that point came the paperwork. So we had to develop a proposal for Charlotte area congregations. We wrote grants. We had to get everybody on board with what we were doing. We had to become real because at that point we were just a group of people with some ideas and by this time a fair number of connections. And Diocesan Council recognized us in January of 2015. Uh, we got back in the building in February. We had lots of work to do. I wanted to say this whole business of becoming real is really important. And we thought it was going to take us six months to open. We opened on March 30th, less than two months after we got back in the building. When I was thinking about some of the assets that I saw, it really, you know, one of the things that stood out to me that we had this big asset and we didn't know what to do with it. And we were babes in the woods and we were just blessed that we were able to put together a team that that was really willing really to take some risks and reach out to people they didn't know and, and, and be really welcoming, not just into the space, but into the whole process of figuring out what to do with it. One of the, <laughs> it, it, somebody said at some point you're gonna have to start saying no. In some ways we've kind of reached that point. We have to at least say pause for right now. But um, yes is a really powerful word that opens a lot of doors. It's really interesting that the very first piece of paper that we put anything about who we were down, we called ourselves Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte, and the name has stuck. And our tagline was feeding body, mind, and spirit. And four and a half years later, that is still true. We are learning every day. We're not strictly refugee ministry. We work with immigrants. We work with the broader community in East Charlotte. And we found that the, for, for us, one of the most important things we do is we practice radical hospitality. And Tony is actually the queen of radical hospitality. So please take it away, Tony. Thank you, Rebecca. So Rebecca brought you right up into when the building reopened in March of 2015. And then in August of 2015, they hired me as a part-time program coordinator. And um, it was half time. It sounded like the easiest job in the world. I took it because I was finishing up a degree and I had some other stuff going on. But um, you know that story of the mustard seed that's planted in the ground and it grows and grows and grows and um, eventually birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Um, that little seed of Galilee Ministries grew and grew and grew. And one of our biggest challenges has been how to actually control that growth in ways that are sustainable and faithful. Because when you have a building and we offer it um, rent-free, there are lots of people who are interested in being in your space. So there really hasn't been any problem of growing the ministry at all. Our model has been one, and you've probably picked this up already, of just supporting other organizations who are already doing 
good work really well. We haven't tried to recreate the wheel at all. If there's somebody already doing it and we can offer them space and support, that's what we want to do. We're not trying to um, dream up competing ministries or copycat ministries. We're just trying to support a lot of the folks in our community who are already doing really good work. And along the way, we are figuring out our niche, what we can do, um, maybe better than other people. But um, for the most part, we have just been able to offer a lot of program by supporting other uh, organizations. Yeah, we have several different groups who work with refugees, but as Gal uh, Rebecca said, that's not exclusively what we do. We have a food pantry um, that's open four days a week that serves a ton of groceries to the general population. And then on the weekends, a whole other group of uh, organizations come in. This is the Bhutanese Community Association's Karate Dojo that they run out of the parish hall, which now we call the flag hall. Um, there are several ethnic small churches that serve refugee communities, two Montagnard and one Ethiopian who meet at the church. Um, but one of the best things that we get to do is share the building with people for special events like memorial services and weddings because we offer it at really low fees that most of these groups, it would be hard for them to afford a space like this usually. The crown jewel of the week is our community meal, which happens on Wednesdays at lunch out of the community kitchen. We serve between 120 and 220 people every week. Uh, it is fresh food. It's not a soup kitchen. Farmer's market, uh, vegetables, halal meat, um, some of the best food I eat all week. We've got a partnership with a seafood distributor where we get fresh salmon all the time. It's good food. And uh, you sit at table with people from all across socioeconomic, religious, racial, national groups and have the, a conversation like none you'd ever have your whole week. So it is definitely that commercial kitchen has, God has really used that space. Right now we're serving over 700 people a week. And that's um, some, most of those people multiple times. Most of those people are in English classes and they stay for lunch and they get food from the gleaned vegetables that we serve. Their children are in childcare. So they, and they count just once. So it's a, it's a huge um, network and we don't do it alone. We do it um, with a bunch of help. And I will say, I think the community listening was so essential to what we did because one of the things we've learned over time, it's like every time, every time we do something that has bubbled up through conversations with the community, it generally does really, really well. Every time we just go like, oh, well, we can do whatever. And it doesn't have community rootedness. Um, I wouldn't say every time, but many times those things have just flopped. So that community basis is just critical. Yeah, it's really been fun, um, especially working with other faith traditions. Uh, uh, one uh, meeting I remember in particular with the Galilee um, planning group, or the planning, at the time it wasn't the board. What did we call ourselves? I don't know what we call ourselves. Galilee Council. Council. We, we, we play around with names. Yeah, we, 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 we've evolved. But, um, you know, we're like, oh, we love having the Hindu temple in the front yard. We love having the um, mosque on the street serve lunch. We love having the Bhutanese Community Association doing karate. 
but we're really not sure about allowing a Baptist church to use that sanctuary where you just kind of sit back and you go, okay, what are our, what are the barriers we are putting up, you know? And um, so we've ended up, we have this fabulous relationship with the biggest Baptist church in town. Um, their construction ministry spends a whole lot of time at Galilee. And we just, we just, you know, along the way we had to open up too. And it's, it's been fabulous to just see, um, where we have, we as the church, as the mainline church, have sometimes put up our own barriers. And I'll just add to that, because one of the big uh, learning experiences for me in this has been the whole, has been really sort of boiling Christianity down to its essentials and boiling my faith down to its essentials. And, uh, and really, you know, we've, we've all gone through the process of thinking about what can we, you know, what do we have to have and what can we give up? And to the, the beautiful Tree of Life mural that Tony started her presentation with, that used to be a cross. And every morning when all the Muslim students and the Hindu students and the Buddhist students would come into English classes, they would see the cross painted on the wall. And it wasn't done by us, it was done by the tenant congregation. But we got feedback that it was really off-putting for their faith tradition. And we had decided that if we really wanted to love everybody as a child of God, we needed to find a way to come up with a symbol, at least in that main area that everybody was going to be in, that was more inclusive. So the Catholic Charities uh, folk designed the Tree of Life and the refugee kids painted it. And uh, we say now that the cross is blooming. So this is my Sabbath, a little humor, um, you know, ABCD. These are my ABCDs. Um, this is just a little humor about the practical uh, questions, the practical decisions, the, the nitty gritty that comes up when you step into new spaces. Um, there's just a, every day a million little details when you're sharing the building with all these other people. Um, and so I, I thought, uh, you know, just open it up when, and talk about four of the biggest hurdles that we have faced and how assets have helped us um, along the way. And the first um, big hurdle is, is establishing a system for decision-making because there are a lot of decisions to make. But here's some of the questions that we had to uh, discern. Uh, how much leverage will the church retain as owner of the building and how much of it are we willing to share with the other groups in the building? We started out calling those groups partners and we, we had to figure out what in the world do we mean when we mean partner? Does it mean we're all equal? Does the church still have some authority and as steward of the building? And um, so we've had to wrestle with that. We had to wrestle with how far our hospitality can extend without jeopardizing safety and security. Right now it's parking issues. How, you know, how much program can we really have when people park um, so dangerously in our parking lot? Um, we've had to clarify what's our responsibility as the church and what are our partners' responsibilities. And we've also had to clarify what it means to be a ministry of the diocese because that's right there on our seal. Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte, the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. And what does that mean um, for us uh, since we're not really a parish? What, what does that mean? So those are some of the, the big hurdles 
that we've had to come up with and why we've needed a system for decision making. And what we, what we settled on is a board with a kind of a corporate kind of board with bylaws, but what we kept in our bylaws was consensus decision making. We don't have yes and no voting in our meetings. We have consensus and tabling until, so there, we've, we've retained really some discernment within our structure. Um, my joke is that we are, it should be asset-based community discernment because prayer is a really big part of our decision-making. Um, and, and a trap here was that all of these people have wonderful experiences in different institutions and organizations. Some of them have a lot of experience on church committees. Um, we've got a couple former directors of nonprofits. We have um, you know, clergy, we have a lawyer, we have people that pull from so many different um, strengths and different models of decision-making. And uh, it would have been really easy just to kind of settle on one of those models because it was something we were all used to and knew and understood. But we really did come up with our own model that suited us. And I really see that as an asset that we were able to pull from so many different models for decision-making. The second um, hurdle was staffing needs. Um, I told you we serve 700 people a week and for a while I was the only employee at Galilee and, I'm, and still we are very, very understaffed if you count people who are paid to be there. We rely very heavily on our volunteers to do most of the work. And where we pull from volunteers, we pull from suburban wealthy church members who drive in you know for their own cultural experience but we also pull from the neighborhood itself i've had one of the rectors of one of the biggest churches in the city asked me tony who are these people who are volunteering i was like volunteers and he's like no no they're like special needs people where did they come from and i was like oh they're just they're just volunteers you know he just thought the line between who is being served and who is serving is very fluid at galilee you know we our philosophy is everybody is coming with some need um, maybe you need food, but maybe I need good conversation. And so the um, we really don't have, uh, even as we collect our data, we just say volunteers and um, clients. They're all in one pool because we really can't distinguish who's, who is being served. And I mean, I'm assuming everyone's being served. Our community meal, I remember one of the first two weeks they were open, I came to the window and I said, is there enough food for me? And Ben said, well, you're here, aren't you? And I was, <laughs> he said, you're here. That's all you have to do. You don't have to prove you need food. You just show up. Um, so, uh, you know, our, our asset has really been just welcoming the diversity of people in the community. We have a lot of um, senior and disabled adults who volunteer. And they're not able to do things like carry the tray of coffee cups, but they are, they are the welcoming face that people see when they walk in the door. So that, that's a big asset just to just to look at the people around you. You have all the people you need to run a program, I promise you. The next one is means and ends. And I called it this because I really wasn't, this kind of leads into from what I said before, is that just to, to clarify for ourselves what are means and what are ends. And in grant writing, uh, you always have to have a bottom line, you have data, you show who is being served and are they being served efficiently and effectively. But our model is so different. It is so hard to describe to people. Um, and our goals are kind of vague. Our goals are we want to create a place where people feel at home, where they can be themselves, where they can experience 
um, community with other people around them. And so uh, traditional fundraising hasn't worked very well for us, where, you know, because our goal is to build community. It isn't necessarily to feed people. The asset has been just to, to focus on the unspoken, unnamed needs that are being met, how people feel. Um, it, and I want to read just a couple words that I wrote down, if I can find it on my notes. Respect, dignity, conversation, laughter, a sense of security and safety, uh -huh. the ability to contribute. Come on in, be yourself, make yourself at home. These are things that are really hard to measure. <laughs> but, but what I realize is that the way we do our job is accomplishing our goal. The purpose of community is community. And so just to, along the way to remember that your means are your ends. The way you do the work accomplishes the goal. And it might not be always easy to measure and quantify, but it is the main thing. And then the last thing is what we brought up earlier, sustainability. How do we, how do we keep all this going? And it's not easy. It hasn't been easy for us. And we, are, and we don't have any good answers here. Rebecca, though, has reminded me recently that the opposite of scarcity isn't abundance. It is enough. The opposite of scarcity is enough. And we have enough. We have enough each. We, we've been able to pay our bills. We've been able to um, make our repairs to the building and to, to invest. Um, actually, we've got a couple capital, big capital improvements going right now in the building. Uh, and so we've just had to trust that God will provide along the way. And we are scrounging all the time. And we, we don't have the magic bullet on that one at all. But the one thing that I do know that we have plenty of is stories. Um, it is our biggest asset are the stories um, that we have to tell about the people that we talk with and the lives that are changed. And sometimes we have success telling our story um, at churches or at the Rotary Club or, um, you know, on a webinar. But the best way for us to tell our stories is to invite people to come and experience the community for themselves. Uh, so we invite people to come in experience it, and then go tell their own stories. And we're trusting that our fundraising will grow organically in the same way that the program has, and that God will bless those stories as they go out, that they are new seeds that are being sown and that they will bear fruit. Um, so our, our other expression is um, just come and see. Come and see for yourself. I don't know what's in the chat as far as other questions, if there are things there, or if we, I don't know, how are we doing on time? Doing quite well. I think we do have some time to uh, field the questions. I'm truly still interested in this as well. Are the programs like, do you just get donations from people who have come and seen? Do you, do you receive some funds from the ministries that are renting space or leasing in your building? Um, there's a question about that funding and then a few more to follow. Okay. Um, we started out asking for donations from the people who were using space in the building the the original folks who had designated space and we could not figure out a fair way to do that and what sort of tipped the balance and made us feel like that was probably not the best way to go was when I found out that one of the people who was using the space was making up a portion of the funding that was supposed to be coming from their agency out of the private checking account of the person who was there, you know, running that program. And it was just like, yeah, it was just like, whoa, this is, you know, this is not right. 
uh, is appreciated, but it's not right for us to put that much of a hardship on the programs. So, um, so we don't. And now, if you have a special event and you have 200 people there, you know, yes, we're going to ask for a contribution. And we actually have some suggestions about what your contribution should be. Um, we do, um, we get funding from congregations uh, in varying amounts. We're not written into anyone's budget yet, but we want to be. We have gotten grants from the diocese. We have gotten uh, grants from different community organizations. So here, here's, here's a story about how God works. We've been having all these shingles blow off our nave roof, and it's been awful. All of a sudden, some, you know, so we got the insurance adjuster out from church insurance. One of our volunteers got him out. And next thing we know, church insurance is buying us a whole new roof. And it's like church insurance never does that. But somehow, you know, we need a whole new roof and we're getting a whole new roof. It's not always magic. I mean, we do, we do stress. I don't want we you to. Do. Yes, we do. We have sleep this oh, night. Oh, beautiful. But, um, but, but our bottom line is to, to keep living by faith and just to trust that, that this is something that we are supposed to be doing as we act in faith. We just, I don't know, we're still, we're trying to figure it out right now. We really are. And, uh, you know, they're in the middle of trying to figure out whether we can bring on a second person that would do more development work and, so we, you know, it's just part of our growth right now is trying to figure that out. The churches who use space all faithfully out of their offering plate give us a donation every month. But the other agencies that are in the building, we do not charge them rent. One of the things that is going to help us is the missionary resource support funding that the diocese make, has made available up to this point only to clergy their charter has now been changed so that they will be able to support lay-led ministries. And so we'll be able to pay, for example, Tony's salary using that funding source that we previously have not been able to do. And that's going to be a big help. Thank you. And then Eileen had a question. There are surely many charitable and helping others groups that are interested in using your space. Do you have issues around maintaining a consistent common focus among the many groups with you so the center is perceived as having a focus and not being all over the place? Or is that not a concern? It is a concern and I think it has been all over the place. And we are just now realizing when Rebecca said we're, we're thinking we're at a place now where we really do have to say no. We are at an, a new juncture where we are realizing that we it's time to curate. It is time to really prayerfully go out and seek out organizations that that are serving um, different pockets of the community. Uh, the NAVE building right now is emptied pretty much during the week just because of the way some things have moved around and we're trying to discern whether that gets shared in this with the same model or if we could use that space as a money maker, you know, as an event space that would support the rest of the um, program that's happening in the other building. So we are at a place right now where we are curating and really discerning to try to figure out what's what what that looks like in the future. And, and that's probably also going to have to involve some more listening to the community and really reaching out so that we stay community-based because some of the ideas that have come in, again, they may be things that somebody thinks would be great, but if they're not responding to the kind of, if they wouldn't resonate with 
the community and the geography that we serve, it might not be the thing for us. We've been really hesitant though to lock ourselves down too tight on um, like a long-term mission, five-year plan kind of thing. And a good example is we have been pretty refugee focused currently, but who knows? I mean, with the current Trump's administration right now talking about zero refugees next year, uh, we know there are a whole lot of migrants just plain old, you know, immigrants from the southern border in our neighborhood. And we are uh, starting a Spanish-English conversation night program this fall in conjunction with our local elementary school that's just around the corner where those families, 65% of those families are Spanish-speaking families. So already we can kind of sense just responding to our community. It had been really refugee-focused five, six years ago. It might end up being more immigrant-focused um, in the next over the next couple of years. So we've tried to stay kind of nimble and responsive to whatever really is going on in the neighborhood. We're in a gentrifying neighborhood. It's it's changing all the time. And so to try to, to be responsive to that community. And Linda had a question. Are all the board members members of the Episcopal Church? Is the board a board of the diocese or is the Galilee Ministry and Board include, does it include partners in the building? If you could talk about that board and governance structure. I'll start out. It's it's not all Episcopalian. It started out, it was all Episcopalian, but now we have a Presbyterian and we have, is, is Hasta Hindu, Hindu or Buddhist? He's Hindu. Hindu. Mm -hmm. oh, so, so um, and he is from the Bhutanese Community Association. We also have, uh, and Tony's Lutheran, by the way. Yeah. We had, we started out and we just had everybody meeting all together. And it, we, we went, we were having four hour meetings. And so now we have sort of the board meeting and I really resisted the term board until we all decided that it would be a board kind of like a surfboard, you know, that can just sort of ride the wave. So we have the board that deals with a lot of the, the nuts and bolts of just keeping the place going. And then we have a partners meeting. And do you want to talk about that, Tony? Yeah, that group's represented in that meeting, and I'd like it to get bigger than it is, but they are the people who actually have doors that lock with their own space. They're the people who kind of, if, if they paid money, they would have rented designated space. And um, so at the beginning of this model, we really did imagine that everybody would just sort of be on the same playing field, that there'd be, you know, this complete decision-making flat across all of these organizations in the building. And it became problematic um, because, because several of the groups really uh, had had a desire to just kind of take the whole building for a refugee center. And that had never been the original idea. It, the original idea had been to be a collaboration of a bunch of different organizations that would form community in itself. And so I said we have evolved. We've gone through a lot of changes in thinking through the structure of how to make decisions in the building. And, I, and it's, not, it's not been a straight line. We've really had to discern a lot along the way what is faithful. And it's, it's really not easy work. I mean, collaboration is hard. And anybody who tells you otherwise is just flat out lying. But, <laughs> it, is but it is so worth it. It is so worth it because you can do so much more together than you can do by yourself. That's great. And for time, um, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, the, this conversation that we hosted today literally came about because Tony joined Partners and Welcome 
I called her, we had an amazing conversation, and then many months later, this event came together. So we want Partners in Welcome and Episcopal Migration Ministries to be a place where we can host conversations like this. So if any of you on the call are like, oh my goodness, I want more, or oh my goodness, we have a story to share, that's what we're here for. So please do reach out. And then that's all I have. So Tony, I'm going to turn it over to you for our closing prayer. Um, I wanted to share with us a prayer today that my church uses for its benediction um, often, and I find it really powerful. So let's pray. May you never feel alone in the struggle for justice and peace. May you know the support of family, friends, and people who feel as passionately about the world as you do. May you feel a part of the great cloud of witnesses who throughout the ages did God's work and prayed for the coming of the kingdom. May you never feel alone. And if you do, may you carry in your heart the words of Jesus, who told his friends, I am with you always. Amen. Amen. Tony and Rebecca, thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you, you all very much. And thank you, Allison. Thank you. God bless. Well, Allison, the Galilee ministry story was so inspiring and I just felt so encouraged by the way the community has come together and the amazing things that they have built together. I couldn't agree more. And we really encourage you listeners to consider making a gift to support Galilee Ministries and their important work. You can visit galilee.dionc.org to make a donation and the link will also be in the podcast notes. And we welcome you to join in the work of welcome by making a donation to Episcopal Migration Ministries. No gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. And if you're not in the regular habit of visiting EMM's social media or our blog, we really encourage you to. You can visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. And on social media, we are EMM Refugees. We have many upcoming events, webinars, virtual workshops, book club gatherings, and we'd love to have you join us. All that information is on our website, blog, and on social media, specifically our Facebook events. It's time to share the message of welcome loudly and proudly. Purchase an EMM t-shirt or bag and join us in proclaiming that you support refugees and you stand with EMM. It's thanks to our listeners like you that even in the midst of grave challenges, we are standing strong, building our network of supporters, strengthening our organization and our partners, and continuing to proclaim boldly and without ceasing that we support refugees. Go to bit.ly forward slash EMM fall 2019 and order one today. I am most excited, Kendall, about this this fall fundraiser, having hoodies. I'm going to get my very own EMM hoodie. And so listeners, make sure you get yours too. Our theme song composer is Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammawinda.bandcamp.com. Thanks for joining us today, listeners. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>